views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the prize is high in the sky. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate an issue of 21st century legalized slavery, currently hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed, along with commentary by guests and callers. On this weekly broadcast, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is allowed through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat. If you want to know about the new abolitionist movement, what it is, and what it's about, this is officially the place to start. This is the November 15, 2017 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio, and we are proud to announce that today begins the tenure of Sister Leila Halima Aziz as a regular co-host on this program. On this day, in 1777, after 16 months of debate, the Continental Congress, sitting in its temporary capital of York, Pennsylvania, agreed to adopt the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. Also on this day, the Berlin Conference of 1884 through 1885 began. It was also known as the Congo Conference pertaining to the colonization of Africa, organized at an international conference in Berlin. Berlin. Its outcome on February 26th, called the General Act of the Berlin Conference, can be seen as the formalization of the scramble for Africa. The conference ushered in a period of heightened colonial activity by European powers, which eliminated or overrode most existing forms of African autonomy and self-governance. The Berlin Conference did not initiate European colonization of Africa, but it did legitimate and formalize the process. In addition, it sparked new interests in Africa. Following the close of the conference, European powers expanded their claims in Africa such that by 1900, European states had claimed nearly 90% of African territory. Tribal and I are continuing our efforts here in Newcomerstown, Ohio, and we'll update you on our progress tonight. Much of today's program will focus on the wholesale national return of unconstitutional debtors' prisons. We'll go over stories, peoples, and policies that have allowed this nation to regress into utter corruption and the people affected by this oppressive for-profit and illegal system. Our 
Abolitionist in profile tonight is Albert Austin Guthrie, who was born on July 9, 1803, in Washington County, Ohio, and is considered one of the state's leading abolitionists. In the segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, we remember the Amistad Rebellion of 1839. Our riders of the 21st Century Underground Railroad are Eric Kelly and Ralph Lee, who walked out of prison after a 24-year fight for freedom. Have a question or comment? You can call us toll-free at... 1-866-510-9025. You can chat with us and others by logging in at Uber slash Black Talk Radio Network. Once again, I'm Max Farthest. What's up, Miss Scotty? What's up, Layla? Hey, what's going on, Max? Uh, if Layla's on the board, hit star star to unmute yourself because I don't know your phone number. All right, there she is. All right. Yeah, just... How you guys doing? Doing the best we Welcome can. Welcome home. Thank you for having me. I feel at home. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, uh, it's good to know that we'll have your voice, first of all, because of the, you know, the power and the intensity and the passion behind uh, what you know, the experiences that you have and the things that you're involved in, but also as a direct line to the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights Coalition. So uh, speaking as the official program for them, we'll make sure that we're getting the information correct and straight from the people who uh, know best. Thank you, sir. And I learned from the best, you guys. And you two are included. No doubt. So, Scotty, how was your weekend, man? And and do you have anything to say? Uh, how's my week? Um, I'm yeah. doing the best I can, man. I suppose it's better than a lot of other people's. I don't like to complain too much because I'm not subjected to a lot of stuff that people are subjected to behind these enemy lines. So, you know, I'm here. I'm ready to work. I know you've been excited to hear that uh, Layla was coming on to the program and uh, looking forward to that as much as I was. Yes, it's about time we had some of that feminine energy come back to the program. You know, we've had uh, past hosts, uh, Legacy Leonard, may she rest in power, uh, and Sister, um, I don't want to say her real name because she didn't use a real name on the show, um, but uh, uh-huh. sister, what's that, Max? nothing oh yeah so just just excited you know to have a new voice on this program that we have been doing so dutifully for the past five years um also excited that we at the end of this month black talk radio network will go into its 10th year of being a platform to elevate marginalized voices so just a lot of a lot of stuff going on that's great, man. Uh, Ten years, like I was telling you in our private conversations, you can start giving out awards and, you know, things like that to other organizations, groups, and people. You know, I mean, you have the legacy behind you for that. So uh, maybe one day we'll have a, a new abolitionist award ceremony or a Black Talk Radio award cer- ceremony. But, yeah, I'm ready to, to jump right in, man. Where do we start? That'd be nice. Bringing people. All right, well, we've got a lot of stories today. And, uh, Layla, just so you know, this is how we do it. Like, we've got this list of stories. As, um, it's on the uh, page in the Black Talk Radio Network community. I'll put a link of it on New Abolitionist Radio uh, in a second. So all you got, we have all of our list of stories. For those listening outside as well, you can just click that link. And a lot of the stories that we're not able to tell or go over, 
over or just you know discuss or can be found there they're all important so i would hope them out so i'm putting that on new abolitionist radio on facebook right now for yeah, you appear to be going in and out, Max. Um, I'm I'm not sure what the problem is. Maybe it's because I'm in a hotel right now, you know, and out here in Ohio. Maybe. Sorry about that. Okay. Well, I guess let me get that out of the way. Uh, we're still out here in Newtown, uh, Newcomers Town, Ohio, and uh, we've been making some. Business locations here that's been a, uh, did several of his speeches, speeches including the what is the 4th of July to the Negro speech uh, the pastor at the time was Harriet Beecher Stowe's brother William Stowe uh, which is amazing so touching that piece of history uh, I was at A.A. Uh, Guthrie's um, tomb uh, his grave up on Abolitionist Hill and uh, that was pretty awesome as well that there is such a thing called Abolitionist Hill where uh, prominent abolitionists are buried and people are proud of them. This whole place is proud of their abolitionist her heritage and that's really nice. So I spent some time doing that. Um, we're still trying to raise more with this thing accomplished. It's not going to be easy. Um, nobody expected it to be but if you're willing and uh, interested in giving us a hand, you can always reach reach out to Facebook or information is there or you can make donations at prismaticdreams at gmail.com p-r-y-i at gmail.com a village to make this happen man at this point you know kind of like but yeah, this is specifically going to be about slavery abolition. We're going to be educating people with a school. We'll have a museum. Um, we'll also have, uh, I guess, spoken word events where we'll bring in speakers and performers and artists, but all abolitionists. And at the same time, it will be acting as an underground railroad in a variety of ways because we've established uh, connections with Ghana where they're expecting us to, you know, have a transfer of people going back and forth from there. So I'm looking forward to all of that. Big dreams on this. Okay. Uh, anything? Uh, yeah. Are we ready to jump into our stories? <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, it sounds like you have, might have something in mind you're looking for. No, I, I, I don't. I really don't. But I do see you picked a couple of stories that's related to an offline conversation we had about voting. Yes. Yes, we've had several conversations about voting. And I've seen that uh, you're talking about the two articles regarding one where former felons in Virginia show just how meaningful it is to vote and uh, they're able to I mean there's tens of thousands of people now who are able to vote that could not vote before it's a wonderful article and also the one where prisoners organized to elect a district attorney in Philadelphia that's pretty awesome too to think that literally they wrote up uh, the proposals and they submitted it and they organized and they got voters to get out there and elect this DA who was uh, considerate of their issues and that, and they got it done. That's wonderful, man. That's that's what we're trying to see happen through this program. Those types of things. What do you think, Layla? I agree with you one hundred percent. What's going on is phenomenal. Seeing how the prisoners organized in Pennsylvania, 
and actually helped pick a fair district attorney. That has led me to pick up a book that I love, that I hold dear to heart, Captive Nation, Black Prison Organizing. And I'm going through that book line by line. And it is, I'm just excited about the potential of what we can do. And looking at Virginia, and I've had a lot of arguments online due to Virginia, and really giving the prisoners, not the prisoners, excuse me, the former prisoners, um, their their congratulations for actually helping to make sure that they held on to a Democratic elected governor. To some of us, they're the same, but there's still symbolism in that. When we looked at those numbers, white women and white men voted for the Republican governor. Black women and many people who are disenfranchised went out there and they turned it. They swung that vote. Isn't that something? And the wolf huffed. It's amazing, man. <laughs> it's it's amazing. Uh, I, I wouldn't. I, I want to read a part of the article about the DA in Philly, if you don't mind. It says uh, Tuesday's general election in Philadelphia saw a former former civil rights attorney running on an anti-incarceration platform. You might as well just say AKA abolitionist platform elected district attorney to the county's fifth largest city, Larry Krasner, who defended black lives matter activists and indicted police officers while in private practice promised sweeping reforms and Philadelphia voters responded in order to shift the race to the left and hold Krasner accountable as he prepares to take office a broad coalition of progressive groups put aside their differences to focus on winning. Let me say that clearly again. They put aside their differences to focus on winning. The leaders of this alliance are the people most impacted by the city's justice system, including prisoners in Pennsylvania state prisons. Their efforts, which help create the conditions of Krasner's victory, are part of a long history of Pennsylvania's incarcerated citizens changing public discourse. You can read that whole article on New Abolitionist Radio as well as the Black Talk Radio Network community. Um, guys? Um, I talked to Elliot Booker about this. He lives in Philadelphia. Uh, he hosts Time for Awakening Radio as well as the platform timeforawakening.com which is affiliated with the Black Talk Media Project. And you know, they've had Democrats before, but again, I don't put no stock in no D, no R, no G, no, none of that matters to me. What matters to me is policy. Party don't matter. Policy does. Okay. And so, you know, they've had Democrats before. The one that I uh, remember most before this one was Seth Williams, as we featured a couple of stories on him. And he was totally corrupt. And his corruption got exposed, and I'm I'm not sure, but he may even be facing charges himself. But this man was so anti-justice, so anti-freedom, and a lot of people, they get fooled by skin color because he was a black man. But let, let me tell you, this man was silently in the corner of the slavers, and, and the person who came before him, who mentored him, was a white woman who they kind of gave her the, um, she had like a national profile of being one of the district attorneys in the country that sent more people or gotten more death penalty convictions than anybody else. 
Okay, and she was supposed to be a Democrat too, you know. So I, I think this is a victory. And I was talking to Elliot, and he didn't have anything negative to say about this guy. And, you know, this is just a start. The election is one thing and, and getting this person in office. Now you have to hold him to his platform. You you know, it, it's it's constant work involved here. It's not we turn out to the polls and then we go home and then we expect things to change. No, you got to keep that pressure on. You got to keep reminding that person why you voted for them. And, you know, I was listening to Tanya Free and Friends earlier today and she has like a rotating panel. And I heard this person make the comment that Barack Obama who got into office with darn near 100% of the black vote. And then for this person to say, well, Barack Obama didn't owe black people nothing. Well, I, I tend to disagree with that. Well, you may not, you can say he didn't owe black people nothing, but he owes something to the people who got him elected. And that is how we have to approach this, is that once we elect somebody, we should hold their feet to the fire, and we should expect those changes of that they campaigned on. Because if we don't, you know, we will end up with somebody who who just doesn't do anything. They they become unrecognizable from the candidate as the person in office. So I, I mean, I think it's a very important step considering a coalition was built and came together, like you mentioned, set aside whatever differences that they had and came together to elect this person and, and then to have the people um, in prison play a role in this organizing. I mean, it's a very inspiring story. Let's just hope that he lives up to his campaign promises. I agree in totality, yes. There was another part of it that I found very interesting, and it's, I guess it's uh, kind of an answer to one of the questions that you uh, mentioned in, when you were talking a little earlier there, Scotty. It says, in meetings with insiders, the coalition learned that moderate Democrats from around the country were interested in helping Krasner if he won. So they responded by becoming more bold. Groups directly impacted by youth incarceration, the bail system, Crimmigration, uh, I guess that's what they're calling it, policing, death by incarceration sentences, and other issues got together and drafted in-depth policy proposals. Prisoners contribute, contributed directly to a number of these proposals. The coalition then articulated a set of demands for the first 100 days in office for the new district attorney and presented both candidates with a list of what could be done on day one. That's pretty awesome right there. They were not playing. Like you said, policy. Day one, you can do this. And in 100 days, we expect you to do this. And in exchange, every one of us is going to go out and vote. We're going to get five family members to do it as well. And we're going to present a voting block with only one purpose, getting you in office. That's pretty, uh, that's awesome. That is definitely awesome, Max. And just looking at how they did it and how they mobilized I really believe that this could be duplicated nationwide. I I agree. Yes. I really do. Um, another section from this article that I feel is very important, it says, throughout the campaign, Krasner publicly stated his support for HB 
That's House Bill 135, a bill in the Philadelphia House of Representatives that would end life without parole and make over 5,000 prisoners in Pennsylvania currently sentenced to die in prison eligible for parole after 15 years. See, that, that's something concrete. That That's something that will definitely have an impact on lives. And so, you know, again, congratulations to the people of Philadelphia. Congratulations to Krasner. But again, we hope, we hope that this person will remain true to their platform. Well, the other story, the one about the uh, former felons in Virginia, uh, I, I would like to read a little bit of that because it's kind of, you know, it's all one story. And, and of course, Layla is working on a project out in uh, her, area, her area right now, uh, which ties right into all of this, as a matter of fact. But l- let me talk about Virginia. It says, votes from people like Williams on Tuesday were deeply significant because it marked a significant achievement by McCullough. McCau- who acted unilaterally to restore those rights to more than 168,000 former felons. 168,000. Wow. A policy Lieutenant Governor Ralph Northam, the governor-elect, has said he is proud of and will continue. Ed Gillespie, his Republican opponent, ran attack ads warning that restoring voting rights to the former felons would make Virginia less safe. Republicans in Virginia have expressed little interest in continually continuing to aggressively restore the rights. Last year, the state GOP successfully challenged McAuliffe when he tried to give a blanket order restoring rights to former felons, and he has done so only on an individual basis since. The party also unsuccessfully pushed a constitutional amendment in the state legislature that would condition the restoration of rights on the payment of all fines and legal fees. So you'll never vote unless you pay us that $20,000 you owe us for the parking tickets. You know what I mean? A measured critics likened to a poll tax. In 2016, there were 508,680 potential voters in Virginia disenfranchised because of felonies three quarters, nearly three quarters of a million people, over a half a million people are disenfranchised because of felonies in Virginia. That's amazing. Including more than one in every five African Americans. One in five, according to the sentencing project. The state's disenfranchisement of felons extends back to the 1830s and was included in the state's 1902 constitution as part of a set of voting restrictions intended to keep African Americans from voting. Felony disenfranchisement policies vary by state, but Virginia is among the four of the most severe that dis- disenfranchises people for life. Wow. Yeah. And it goes Feel to what Scotty was talking about. Yes, it goes to what Scotty was speaking about when he said Democrats and Republicans and understanding politics and policy. Um, We want to go for policy and not really um, deal with the politics of things. But when we look at Virginia, we know that McAuliffe, I think that's how we pronounce his name, the governor at the time, when he saw Trump was going to take Virginia, he did drastic measures. Not because he loves us, doesn't it sound similar to Lincoln, but as a political play to maintain control for the Democratic Party over Virginia. 
So he restored all of those votes, and the Republicans sued him. The appellate court and the court said that he cannot do that. He cannot make an executive order. Um, he has to follow the Constitution of Virginia. And so he had restored votes in November of 2016. At that time, it was about 90,000 people who he hand-wrote and restored their votes um, for that election. Virginia pulled Hillary Clinton's win for her. One thing that was remarkable um, is that the people of the people that had registered to vote, after their rights were restored, they had a 70% turnout rate. Wow. And that is high. Yes. Now, what we're looking at now is the fact that, Virginia, I mean, not Virginia, Florida has 1.7 million votes that are currently, because Florida is another one that takes your voting rights away for life. It's Iowa, Virginia, Florida, and I want to say Kentucky. So when we look at that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong on one of those states, when we look at that, 1.7 million votes, you got people, 2,600 people in Florida who can't vote for driving without a license for life, and 25% of these people, one out of five, I think, blacks in Florida are hit with um, lack of restoration, which includes um, 25% of the African-American community. So it's purposeful. All of these laws were made, just like the 13th Amendment, and to stop African-Americans from being enfranchised and free. And we understand constitutionally they played a very deep trick on us. So we're looking at the things that they did, but Trump won Florida by 20,000 votes. So we also know that Hillary Clinton, she was really serious in the Democratic Party about what's going on with black people, with African people. Those, they would have been a human rights issue, not a political issue. Mm -hmm. So we're supporting the restoration of these votes. We're supporting reenfranchisement because we've always supported these things. And we're letting the Democrats know that we understand that you not, did not do this because you cared. This was not a human rights issue for you. You're doing that because you're losing. And those are the things that make us always weary of you. Yes, Scotty? Yes, um, again, this is still connected to slavery, all right? Like like Sister Layla just laid out for you, um, we know that people with slave status don't have any rights whatsoever. But after you get out of prison, okay, then they pass all these laws to keep you from participating as a full citizen which includes the right to vote now i have to think that voting must mean something if they go through all these efforts to keep people from voting not only with voter disenfranchisement through you know labeling people as felons and stripping them of the right to vote for life but also when they gerrymander districts in order to favor one party over the other so it has to mean something but i would say though voting does not matter if you don't cast a educated vote if you're just voting for someone based on a political affiliation and they have not put forth any policy that's going to address the everyday issues that people go through the human rights abuses the the you know just the over incarceration of individuals and what have you you know you you have to do your homework on these people we can't be blindly voting for someone because they have a D behind their name or they have a R behind their name. You know, to date, 
there has only been one Democrat that I'm aware of, and I can't recall her name right now because I just became aware of her, but she's challenging Dianne Feinstein for her Senate seat out there in California. And she was on the Young Turks the other day, uh, maybe three or four days ago, and I was just delighted to hear her talk about this in the terms using the same language that we use on this program and calling it slavery, calling it slavery. So we definitely need to vote, but more importantly, we have to cast educated votes and we have to let people know you can't take us for granted. Okay. So, you know, it's just, it's just great that we are seeing these victories Uh, in terms of restoring people's rights to vote. And like she said, 70% turnout, that's high. So, and and another thing that stood out to me, Max, and I'm not sure if this was tied to Virginia or if this was tied to the other story uh, in Philly, but I think it was tied to Virginia. For someone to say that if we restore people's voting rights, it's going to make us less safe. I'm trying to wrap my mind around that and what kind of sense does that make? What what is what kind of uh, coded language is that? Because I'm trying to decode what did that person mean when he said, oh, giving former prisoners the right to vote is going to make us less safe. Because I would think the opposite. I would think that them participating in the vote would make them feel part of the community and, you know, voting, in my opinion, is a constructive a, a constructive act. So I, I'm not quite sure what he meant by that. Yeah, there's yeah, a lot to unpack in that make it Make it less, uh, less safe for who? People like him, perhaps? Maybe that's what he meant. We're going to do something, and, and we're really trying to push um, radicalism when it comes to voting. Um, to its to its as far as we can in California, a young woman um, by the name of Taina just paid um, the filing fee and had the attorney general write up the ballot initiative for the California Restoration and Voting Act. And what it's going to do is it's going to remove any um, disenfranchisement, meaning we are going to put voting polling booths in prisons. So you will never get your voting rights ever taken regardless. There is something different between doing a sentence and then having a civil death. And that's what we're seeing happen. And that's one of the reasons why our recidivism rate is like at 65%. Because what happens is you go to prison and you lose everything. You can't have occupational licenses. You can't vote. You cannot do anything. You get paid slave wages. You don't have any kind of um, workman's comp, nothing. And then you're asked to come back into society after that, um, finish parole, do great, and then you can have these rights given back to you. How does that work? That's how you make crime, people, and that's what we're trying to tell them. We have looked at this. We've looked deeply. What's going on in California and prisons nationwide is an investment in keeping the system going. We don't want civil deaths. Everyone should be able to vote, and civic engagement and restorative practices are linked to decreasing recidivism tremendously. And this is not new. Maine and Vermont currently do never take your voting rights away. Most first world nations do not. America has one of the worst of first world nations, the worst. America's voting disenfranchisement is at the worst. We're next to Bolivia and people like that. 
So we have to look at where are we going as far as human rights. And right now we are up to task on a volunteer basis only of collecting 800,000 signatures to get this on the ballot. That's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful, man. Uh, you know, these aspects all have to be addressed. There are nonviolent ways to make some serious changes. Uh, it doesn't make us reformists. It makes us people who are using common sense. I'm an immediatist. I mean, I want slavery to end right now. I think it should have been ended when I said that last sentence. It should have already been over. That's the way I look at it. But I understand that certain things are just not achievable. I mean, what am I going to do to end it right now? So I've got to go with whatever's the best shot i got to get it done soon. And one of these ways is by using politics. Uh, we are organizing on so many different levels. But I, I'm proud of our South Carolina record. In South Carolina, we've had people running an abolitionist platform as uh, in Congress, in for the Senate, as mayor positions, and for city councils. And, you know, I'm one of the most anti-political people you want to meet. I just, I've always hated politics, but I'm willing to do whatever it takes. If it means I've got to get involved with politics, go out here and help people get their voting right back, uh, endorse particular politicians, whatever it takes until this can get done. But there are people who believe otherwise as well. Uh, they think that the time is now to get up, stand up, stand up for your rights, and they don't mean with petitions. There's a revolutionary movement out there that's happening across the world. And just recently, uh, for instance, they recognized the abolitionist movement as part of what they're uh, fighting for, too, and calling for people all across the globe, those out there who are guerrilla fighters, uh, in direct rebellion with the state and fighting for their lives to take up this cause as well. It's kind of a... I don't know what to say about it, but you know what I would like to do is it's only like two or three minutes long, I wouldn't mind playing it on air, letting you guys listen to it, and tell me what you think. This is our friends from the anarchist movement, and they've established the Revolutionary Abolitionist Movement. The link is on uh, our page there, Scotty Reed. On is it a video, or am I looking for a link? It's, it's a video. So you click the link, you open up, you see the video right in the center of the page, and just click play video. Uh, the video itself is powerful. It's powerful, but it's, it's worth looking at and, and discussing. Okay, and, uh, well, like well Max, I mean, it's a lot here, so I'm having trouble finding it. What am I looking for, and wh who is it? It's, it's the first. It's the first link on New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook page. It okay. says Revolutionary Abolitionist Movement. Okay, you don't have to give me a moment to get to Facebook. Okay. Um, but I, I'm gonna say this though, Max. I've always voted since I was eligible to vote since I was 18 years old. And I know there's some people out there who who don't vote. And that's their right not to vote. Okay? But here here is the thing. Just because you don't want to do something, you shouldn't sit around trying to demoralize other people who do see um, value in voting. I see the value here locally in the very fact that we keep electing a sheriff who has a, um, you know, again, he's still part of the same system of slavery and whatnot. But I'm not hearing in all the years I've lived here in Gaston County of prisoners being abused. 
okay, being beat up, being raped and that. I, I've never heard of such a case in all my years of paying attention, you know, to the news of that happening. And every time he runs, he will continue to get my vote. We recently lost um, um, the chief district judge who was a civil rights attorney back in the 60, 60s and was part of some landmark cases here in North Carolina. And he he definitely changed the direction of Gaston County Court to where they weren't um, always looking to incarcerate and looking to alternative uh, means um, you know, to resolve whatever the situation may have been. Oh, oh my God. I'm I'm sorry. This page is not coming up. I'm kind of like souring on Facebook, but you know, so if you don't believe in voting, that's fine. But do you have to tear down those who do? All right. Um, if you want, if you think that we can achieve freedom by an armed revolution, I'm not going to sit back and take pot shots at you and, and, and say, well, you know, you got this and that to continue, can't contend with. Do whatever you feel is best. Malcolm X said by any means necessary. So, you know, I, I just feel like people need to stay in their lanes and not take shots at other people because they may be doing something that you don't agree with you know death by a thousand paper cuts was what we used to say when we first started the uh program so max i'm i'm on the page um i'm still not seeing it what am i looking for are you on the facebook page yes is that where you're at okay it's uh should be now the right at the top revolutionary abolitionist movement Revolutionary Abolitionist Abolition. Okay, I found it. Revolutionaryabolition.org. All right, let me go ahead and queue up this video. See if we can get it to play. to abolishing slavery to those who want liberation for all we announce the formation of the revolutionary abolitionist movement the United States was built on slavery and despite the American Civil War this oppression never ended the abolitionist movement fought against this tyranny but modern slavery and mass brutality persist unchecked Fascism is on the rise. The state has openly declared war on our communities, threatened to ethnically cleanse Latinos, criminalize Muslims, destroy indigenous land, and oppress the LGBTQ community, while continuing to murder and incarcerate black people. The revolutionary abolitionist movement unequivocally states that the plantation system must be destroyed. Today, the anarchist struggle and anti-state feminism are flourishing, and authoritarian modes of resistance are now discredited. The revolution in Rojava, in northern Syria, has set a new standard. 
With a foundation in feminism, ecology, anti-state organizing, and armed struggle, it has actualized a path towards liberation beyond 20th century nationalism. With the founding of groups like the International Revolutionary People's Guerrilla Forces, it is clear that this is the time for anarchist revolutionaries to act without hesitation. We declare our solidarity with the international anti-fascist and anarchist struggle and propose concrete steps in the fight for abolition. Revolutionary abolitionists must fight hand-in-hand hand with those facing oppression. We intend to establish a new underground railroad to free people from bondage. By building revolutionary self-defense networks, connecting them to one another, and developing militant strategies in our neighborhoods, our network will create the capacity to destroy state power and defend our communities. A new global paradigm for revolution has been established be taken up by dedicated revolutionaries, autonomous territories, guerrillas in armed struggle, and all those engaged in the global drive towards liberation and away from statehood, capitalism, patriarchy, and domination. We call on anti-state revolutionary groups to join the revolutionary abolitionist movement and send this message to our comrades to help build the capacity to burn down the American plantation once and for all. Well, all right, there you have it. That's uh, revolutionaryabolition.org. You can check them out over there. And there, I mean, let me hear what you guys think of what you just heard and possibly saw. <laughs> I went on the website and started looking at the um, platform. And so they're talking about building an underground railroad because, um, like Malcolm X said, the black man can't get justice in the courts. The only way to get justice is in the sidewalk. The only way to get justice is when you make justice for yourself. And until we can start getting fair treatment, um, the Underground Railroad seems promising. They're talking about building the abolitionist project, political foundation, self-defense, neighborhood councils, conflict resolution, and revolutionary justice. This one was interesting. Abolition of gender and expropriation appropriation of the cooperative economy. I'm all about cooperative economics. I like what I see. I mean, I'm not, I, I believe in gender. I don't have problems with people who don't. I mean, I don't fight against them. That's just my belief, though, that I do believe that gender exists. But everything else, I'm a staunch believer in, and I don't have a problem with anybody who doesn't believe in gender. That's not going to affect me one way or another. All right. Uh, no doubt. Scotty, anything? You know, um, we used to have a program on Black Talk Radio Network years ago, um, which was hosted by members of the Black Panther Party. I'm talking about elders. Uh, shout out to Sister um, Brother uh, Kambawa Irvin, and he's a former political prisoner as well. But one of the things that he used to say that, that I picked up on is we do things pending revolution, okay? And he definitely was a revolutionary, not only in his thoughts, but in his actions, his his 
his life showed that again his name was Lore his name is Lorenzo Camboa yes. Irvin all right and was a political prisoner and so I, I mean I just would love to just listen to them and try to pick up little nuggets of wisdom but that really stuck with me and they were like you know you do whatever you can you know Malcolm X had a huge influence on the Black Panther Party and he said by any means necessary and he talked about taking the United States at, to the UN and charging genocide. He also talked about, and not only talked about it, but actually worked on going to African nations and getting them to see the plight of the African American and the human rights violations and for them to be in solidarity with us through the UN. Um, also, I work with people, you know, um, that host the radio program Race Treaty. And a lot of them work through the Human Rights Network, and they have presented cases to, to the UN and all that. So what I'm trying to say is I don't have criticism for anyone that is, like Malcolm said, trying to change this miserable condition on the face of this earth. I will work with anyone. And that's how I feel about it. Now, I would have to do more more research, you know, in order for me to see, hey, is there a role for me in this particular uh, uh, part of the abolitionist movement? But on the face of it, hey, do whatever is necessary to bring about freedom. Because certainly, you know, uh, the state is a very violent state and they have no qualms about using violence against us to keep us in a state of slavery. So, you know, uh, much success to them. No doubt, no doubt. Well, um, I would like to invite our callers, I mean, our listeners, if you want to comment on how you feel about this, just press star, star to unmute yourself, or you can dial in at 866-510-9025 and uh, make a question or comment, whatever it is you want to say. Uh, in the meantime, until Scotty tells me that somebody else or you speak up on the line, my opinion is that uh, this is expected, Scotty. It's, it's like you see the fruits coming coming into fruition. You just see the results of something. Like Malcolm said, chickens coming home to roost. This is not something that anybody has to approve of. Like, it, it's really not in that, right. that area. Nobody necessarily has to approve of it. What it's the results. It's, it's it, you have pushed people to the point where now they're starting to look at it on a global level and comparing it to the revolutions in Syria, the armed guerrilla fightings that are going on o over there, and saying that this is necessary now because you're killing people, you're murdering them in in the streets. I just saw a video where they slammed a little six-year-old black child down on the cement. Uh, this cop did, and another one. I'm, I'm being informed of regularly now about what's happening in Providence, Rhode Island, where the cops chased down this innocent man because he looked like the truck looked like the one that they were looking for. This guy who had apparently stole a trooper's car. They had damn near the whole department and everybody's friends chase this man down and then shoot him in broad daylight with uh, a woman in the car with him. Shoot him dead. Just blew the windows all out. Blow, blew the whole, everything up and just murdered this innocent man. And they're looking at this saying, you know, let me see how you legislate that out. <laughs> no, we got to do something different. And it doesn't need anybody to prove. Well, Max, on the legislation part, 
You don't need new legislation. It's already a crime to murder people. These laws are already on the book. What is happening is we're not getting enforcement of these laws. We don't have district attorneys that are willing to charge these people. I mean, I just saw a video and thankfully she got fired, but an assistant district attorney in Dallas who threatened an Uber driver said, I'm going to call the police. I hope the police come and they're going to F you up. You know what I'm saying? So it's not that we need new legislation. We just need enforcement of the laws that's on the book. We need to strip immunities, this unspoken immunity, you know. So so it's, uh, I just don't think it's a matter of needing new laws or needing new legislation. It's just we need people to enforce existing laws and stop allowing slave catchers to get away with murder. Anything, Layla? I agree. I agree. Um, Colin Kaepernick um, just um, did the GQ um, cover and the shirt with all of the the stolen lives on there. And we were deeply moved, um, some of us in San Diego, many of us in San Diego, um, because of um, September 27th last year when Alfred Alongo, an unarmed um, African refugee, was murdered by... um, Gonzalez, a sexual predator who is still allowed to be on the force. And um, what we're seeing is there's no accountability. And those are the things that are in in San Diego, 22 um, investigations of people who died while incarcerated. The Citizens Review Board is just going to close them because they say they don't have enough people to review them. And that was just in the news. So there has to be something done about lives stolen um, on every level, from in the community to in prisons and the human rights violations that are going on. There's no way that um, a 12-year-old, and I'm going to go ahead and say it, a white child playing with a toy gun could have been killed within three seconds and that officer not charged and then come out that he lied to get on that police force in Ohio. I don't understand what's going on. Well, I understand it. It's racism. But um, um, our toleration, our limit, has to. we have to get to the point where enough is enough. Yeah, and I think that's where they're at right now. And they're anarchists. I mean, I'm not surprised, but they, they're at that point now where enough is enough and anything could pop off. And they're allies to the abolitionist movement. And they're just as important as John Brown was important to the movement. You know what exactly. I mean? So exactly. Redneck revolt. <laughs> right. Yeah, all of these things are expected to come together. It's not like we're telling you something new. We're championing, it's not like we're championing a new cause. We are following in the footsteps of those who came before us, like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and John Brown, and people are dying for it. And this is the truth, and the truth defends itself once you start looking. Uh, you just got to start looking, and you'll see the truth. And and here, as in the abolitionist movement, uh, we are trying everything that we can, but primarily, we're trying peaceful ways, at least from our end, because it ain't never been peaceful on your end. <laughs> we know that on the other end, it ain't never been peaceful. People dying every minute. Matter of fact, three people died today already, killed by police. It's about three every day, so three deaths happen today. But we're at least hoping to be able to manage the amount of blood flow that is coming and to reduce it somehow until we finally stop it all together. And the way to do that is by knocking down the first domino called slavery. It's the thing that built this country. It's the reason where it's where all your wealth came from. In 1928, 
when they had that cave in in Alabama, Alabama's revenue, uh, 80% of their revenue was coming from convict leasing. 80% of the state's revenue was coming from prison labor. Mm-hmm. And now, if you look at it today, it's very much the same thing, where they have these, uh, I guess, the uh, healthcare facilities that they have these private contracts with, these uh, no-bid contracts with, the healthcare out there that is not providing healthcare, uh, private prisons, the uh, Free Alabama movement, which began basically that uh, the Millions of Prisoners Human Rights March, uh, the idea with that, and also did the uh, started the prison labor work strike of 2016, which is the largest slave revolt we've seen in this country. Basically, uh, out there, they are working for pennies on the dollar or nothing at all, making goods and services provided on the open market by private corporations, and all of this is allowed under the Thirteenth Amendment. Scotty, as you remember, we even had a Republican candidate come on here, Stacey George, talking about how he was pro-amending the 13th Amendment and everything like that. They can see what's going on out there every single day. So we're we're focusing a lot on that domino effect through the 13th Amendment and hoping we don't have to go to the point where it's just open warfare. Yeah, I I do want to share that Democratic candidate's name out there in California that's challenging a longtime senator, Dianne Feinstein. And I did find the video. It's uh, it was she was on Young Turks. Um, I actually published it on um, November the 11th in our video section um, of Black Talk Radio Network. But her name is Allison Hartson. Allison Hartson. So the title of the video says Democratic candidate Allison Hartson discusses private prisons and slave labor. And and see to me that that's just a victory in itself. And Max, I'm very proud of you, you know, because when we first met, you told me off the top you was an anarchist. Okay? And what did I say? Death by a thousand paper cuts, okay? So because yes. you are anarchist, anarchist don't mean I can't work with you, okay? But you did play a huge role in getting not just one, but several candidates down there in South Carolina to make slavery not mass incarceration, not over-policing, but make slavery a part of their political platform as part of their plank so you should be very proud of that as well as the pressure um, that we put on the Sanders campaign uh, in terms of the Justice is Not for Sale Act which would have abolished uh, slavery and human trafficking so you know I do these things because I don't want to see a civil war I don't want to see bloodshed. If it comes to that, it comes to that. I'm a veteran of the U.S. military in the Gulf War, and I definitely will participate in in something to end slavery. But I don't want to. Come, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see it come to that because we saw how many lives were lost during the last Civil War. So I, again, I'm just trying to do everything I can pending revolution. If revolution pops off because these people don't want to stop practicing slavery, then it pops off. Nothing I can do to stop it. You know, so I say get in where you fit in. Do whatever God has laid upon your heart to do to end slavery. Yes, indeed. Leila, anything? 
No, I totally agree with you guys. I did want to touch on, um, thank you for um, the article um, of really bringing to light what was done with the district attorney race. I just joined the Human Rights Coalition, and I'm interested to see how we can bridge that and work all together to fight this beast. And they do talk about the 13th Amendment and abolition deeply um, within their Human Rights Coalition. And then just touching on the work that Crystal's been doing, which is um, some phenomenal stuff. She's actually with the Human Rights Network, the U.S. Human Rights Network. And the Million for Prisoners Human Rights Coalition has actually formed a subcommittee to deal just with that. And they're getting ready to bring forth things with the backing of everyone else to the international human rights organizations and the U.N. And so that's really exciting stuff that's going on. Yeah, I'm very excited when they said just recently at one of our meetings that within 13 months, they are certain they're going to have the first of congressional hearings on the 13th Amendment. Uh, that is just like, can you imagine the effects of just the discussion of that? Will have yes. The ripple effect. Yes. Wow. The butterfly effect, you know? Because there a lot of people who still haven't had any exposure to the 13th Amendment and they'll see that on C-SPAN they'll see that on whatever outlets that don't normally talk about these issues they'll be forced to and, and they say knowledge is power and information is power and I would like to believe if the majority of the people in this country or any country came to the realization that slavery was never abolished that they would be so moved to join the effort to end it for real this time. So, yes, that would be tremendous. And, and shout out again to the Human Rights Network, as, you know, I've know, known some people that have been working with them and doing tremendous work on the issue of our political prisoners, as well as prisoners of politics. You know, one of the things that I want to make everybody aware of is that it's having an impact. What we're doing is having a global impact, What you just saw with the anarch mo anarchist movement, the revolutionary abolitionist movement, and their call for global assistance is affecting things. Uh, in Brazil, they are sta uh, staging a prison labor work strike and hunger strikes across 12 prisons in uh, Brazil right now. And they're doing it inspired by the September 9th prison labor work strikes that happened here in the United States, where we had as many as 40,000 prisoners across a couple of dozen states involved. Uh, it's amazing that people are saying, they're doing what we said a long time ago, Scotty, they're seeing what we're doing right here and then trying to duplicate it elsewhere, because we're all facing these issues. And if we can get it done here, we can get it done all over the world. Brazil has some of the worst prisons on earth, some of the most notorious decrepit prisons on earth and just two years ago they started opening those prisons for private investors to purchase and to control and to run their prisons they invited private prisons to come in and I believe five of them did and now you're seeing the results of that as things are getting worse <laughs> and the prisoners just can't take it anymore those incarcerated citizens who are being used as collateral and uh, economic development programs now are fighting back it saddens me that people have to risk their lives in the way that they're doing right now with hunger strikes in order to even get any international attention. But I understand you have to do what you have to do. 
I'm just not a fan of suicide as a way to get attention. You know, self-emoliation, I, I, I've never been a fan of that, but I know that it is necessary sometimes that you need to starve in order for somebody to go, hey, why are you starving? And start asking questions. Drastic so congratulations on everybody who mm-hmm. made that influence go global. Most certainly. Um, do we want to go ahead and take our station identification break before we hit another story, Max? Yes, I think that's a good idea. And when we come back, I want to try to focus on the debtors' prisons articles that we have. I believe that there's three of them. So uh, we'll try to get through those three and tie it all together for you and show you how uh, these economic development programs stem from these debtors' prisons. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network uh, with Max Parker, Scotty Reed, and today, Layla Aziz, and next week as well. We'll be right back after these messages. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, We are going to get into our stories about debtors' prisons in the United States. We have several of them. They've been coming out all across America I would like to give you, uh, I'd like to start with one from my former home state, which was South Carolina, uh, if that's all right. And this comes from the uh, the Post and Courier. And, you know, a couple of months ago, we was talking here on New Abolitionist Radio about how many people in South Carolina, particularly in certain counties, are ushered directly into these prisons and jails without ever receiving any kind of counsel whatsoever, even when requested. Instead, they make up jokes about it, like said, the black guy said, give me a lawyer, dog, and D-A-W-G, and make big jokes about it, when, like, the fact is they're not offering any lawyers at all. They're just assembly lining people directly into these jails and cells. And that was taken up by the courts in South Carolina, who now have, uh, well, let me let me just read it, <laughs> read some of it to you like this. It starts with, the title is, Thousands of Arrest Warrants for Low-Level Offenders Recalled Under Directive from South Carolina's Chief Justice. Don't you like the way that sounds? Tens of thousands of South Carolinians wanted for arrests for skipping court dates or blowing off fines might be breathing a sigh of relief as judges have stopped jailing some of these low-level offenders under instructions from the state's Chief Justice. Mind you, this is a very long article, so I'm just going to read some of it uh, in the beginning just so you understand exactly what's happening. Hey, Max, I'm sorry to interrupt you, um, but we do have a caller, and I don't, you know, want to have them waiting because they may want to comment on something we discussed. So before we jump in that new article, can we take this call? Yeah, I'm not that far into it. Let's go. Okay. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. State your comment uh, or question. Erico973. Oh, hey, hey, what's going on, guys? It's Yusuf. Uh-huh. <laughs> my brother, Yusuf. Uh, no doubt, man. Welcome to the hey, program man, again. I miss you guys, man. I miss y'all, man. Yeah, 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 man. No doubt. No doubt. Did you want to say something uh, about what we had no, already no, no. talked about? Go ahead, with, go, 
go ahead with that article. That was something I was going to m- mention, but that's your turf. South Carolina is your turf, man. <laughs> no doubt, man. And I think this is a victory for all of us in South Carolina. South Carolina should be proud of itself for these types of movements. Uh, so continuing on. But the move has stirred fear that prolonging their freedom will jeopardize victims of their crimes, which include domestic violence. Some judges also reportedly feel threatened with a jail sentence of their own if they run afoul of the new directive. And some authorities worry that the move will embolden people to skip their court dates altogether. In the past, people who fail to pay fines or don't show up for a trial on certain misdemeanors or traffic tickets have been captured and put behind bars captured and put behind bar. Wow. Sometimes until their bills are paid or their maximum jail times or terms are served. But the advocates said the practice turned jails into debtors' prisons. Supreme Court Chief Justice Donald Beatty has taken steps recently to address such concerns, particularly when impoverished people are convicted and incarcerated without ever being told of their right to have an attorney defend them. Scores of arrest warrants statewide are being recalled as a result. Even though Beatty has yet to issue a formal written order on the practice, many summary courts, which include county magistrates and municipal judges from the low country to the upstate, have suspended all arrests on bench warrants as they scramble to figure out which cases are affected. Beatty's instructions do not apply to the most serious misdemeanors and felonies that are handled in circuit court, but in Horry County, about 230 bench warrants from domestic violence cases and jury trials are among the 7,500 being recalled. Sheriff Sergeant Timmy Tyner said more than 4,600 stem from traffic violations. Wow, out of 7,500 warrants, 4,600 of them are freaking traffic violations. And this is how you take people from the streets to the jail cells, because most of the time they can't afford to pay the, the prices that you, you've got on them. In any case, I'm going to read just a little bit more, and then uh, we, we can discuss some of it. It says, in Charleston and Greenville counties, law officers were told not to serve any of the thousands of pending bench warrants from magistrates and city judges, authorities there said, as they tally exactly how many cases are affected. Charleston County Chief Magistrate, Magistrate Leroy Linen, or Linen, on Tuesday also ordered summary court judges to recall all bench warrants until further notice. So basically, they're saying we are no longer issuing this warrant for your arrest for the uh, not showing up to court or not paying your traffic tickets or whatever it may be. But I don't see anything in there about expunging those tickets. So I, I'm kind of curious how this is going to work out. What do you guys think? Yourself, did you want to comment? That was, oh, go ahead, brother. I'm sorry. No, no, I was coming to you. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, that was one of the things that stood out for me as well. You know, uh, they're waiting for the the chief justice to uh, issue his actual order because it has to come in writing, and then he'll he'll give them proper guidance on it. there's no mention in any of the articles that I've read about anything dealing with expungement. What it's basically doing is taking away the process of just automatically, you know, jailing them. And it mentions in the article, you know, the effects of people being jailed, whether, you know, they're losing jobs, you know, uh, 
and it's upsetting the balance of people's lives. So they want to just cut that out. But there's but what I'm gathering from it is that you know people are still going to be responsible for defending the ticket, whether it's you know uh, paying a fine or going there and taking it to trial, you know, and trying to you know trying to win. But he's just taking out that process. It was sort of like. Uh, just this revolving door thing they had going to this big cash cow because even in the article you can gather that you know a lot of judges have a problem with this and this is why he, he, he also mentioned you know judges you know if they violate this they're committing a crime because you, you know it's not lost that the uh, that the uh, chief justice is a black man that can't be lost in this as well. I'm wondering. This is a black man, and you have all these little rural counties where, you know, it's sort of like Mayberry where they do their own little thing, and here this black man is telling them what to do, and these judges are going to want to go back and do their own thing because we know that this is the primary source of income for many of these municipalities, which is why they've always bypassed the law to just push this thing push this thing through. A lot of times they're not mailing out the court notices and all of this stuff causing people to miss their court dates so they can't get the warrants out for them. Hmm. I'm wondering so, if this was an elected position because I live in one of those rural counties and may, may rest in power but we had a black chief district judge who changed the direction of that court. Now I haven't been back to court and hopefully we'll never have to go back to court. And but I hope that you know what the policy that he laid down will continue. So I'm just wondering if this was an elected position because judges are elected in many of these counties and, and what have you. Right. And and the thing that really stands out to me is he's basically saying is that we're not going to send slave catchers out there to hunt you down for nonviolent moving viol- traffic violations you know um now i do I, I i do think that if these people get picked up for something else let's say just let's just say there's a domestic violence incident and the police come out i do believe that they will run the names of the parties involved and if you got an outstanding warrant that they will uh, take you in but they're not it seems to me not you know on just sending them out because I'm sure that's like here in Gaston County that's what all the deputies basically do is go out and serve warrants and what have you right and right. and so you know that's a change right there and then it also speaks to and I've heard this over and over throughout the years is that you got a whole bunch of violent crimes, primarily rape uh, cases that are unsolved and there's not enough resources and manpower devoted to solving violent crimes and taking those people off the street as as much as, you know, they're sending out people to, to arrest them over tickets and, and things of that nature. So that, you know, kind of stands out to me. Absolutely. Okay, so I just looked it up. Uh, it's a, the the judges are selected by the legislature, and its current term ends in twenty twenty four. 
Okay, so in that particular case, uh, voting for um, a representative does matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is where, you know, your state assembly. This is, this, this is the importance of these local elections. And this, and it's, it's really, um, it enrages me because this country systematically, institutionally has continued to wage a war on black people. And that's what's really upsetting about this. And then some people say, well, where did you get black from? Because we're stopped far more often than anyone else and ticketed far more often than anyone else. Every piece of research that these police departments put out, it shows racial profiling. And when you look at that, and I'm looking at, I got a ticket because I pulled out the gas station. I didn't have my lights on. By the time the police officer got to me, I had them on. She gives me a ticket. I didn't know it was a fix-it ticket. She could have signed it. My lights were on. But no, she made me go to court. I work. I'm a working mom. I went and called the, the, they had an automated system and I rescheduled and then happened on the day I rescheduled, my twins were very sick. Am I going to leave a twin that's throwing up with a fever at home to go to court? No. So guess what? On a $25 ticket, they hit me with a $300 civil assessment. Then I went to court, showed up because I didn't want a warrant. They said, okay, all you have to do is have the police sign the ticket. So I'm, now I'm enraged because why didn't the police officer who gave me the ticket do that? Why are you people wasting our time? This is how you wrap people up in the system. Left. Somehow I was supposed to come back there. I, I didn't tell them I was coming back by this date when I went to the police officer to get the ticket signed. They hit me with another $300 civil assessment. How do you give me a failure to appear on a failure to appear? So my <laughs> ticket is $625 off of a $25 fix-it ticket of something that never was broken. This is how you right. wrap people up in the system. The other day I put on Facebook all the police officers. They, in my community happens to be the black and brown community. I'm at work and the police are having a pull everybody over day. People down the street, up the street, across the street. It's, and, and it mm -hmm. looks like, oh, they're, try, they're ticketing people, poor black and brown people, to make sure because that's how they pay for their EMT. So when I go to talk right. to my legislature, and I'm like, come on, what's up with these civil assessments? And why, when a person gets a ticket, the ticket is $50, and then you add another 200 before they even get a civil assessment? You give them an automatic $200 fine on $50 tickets. Oh, because that pays for our EMT. You don't pay for your emergency medical services off the blood of black and brown people. You're, you mean 911 is a joke. We're paying for that? And this is what we're seeing over and over. They put you in jail. You lose your job. They sell you to the highest bidder. From the bottom to the top, we can't get a break from a, a headlight being out, and then we die in the process of the headlight being out. Look at Castillo. Why would you stop that man 45 times? Right. Why would Death anyone be stopped 45 times? Mm -hmm. And this is what we're dealing with, and this is how they feed their system off of the blood of our people. Amen to that. You know, the, one of the examples you were talking about is, for instance, there's in Colorado, they're doing the same thing where a story just came out about a woman who spent 27 days in jail because she couldn't afford a $55 pretrial service. They spent $2,400 to hold her for this $55 fee. Now, how does that make any damn sense at all unless you're only using their bodies literally as a form of collateral? And it will express itself through this $2,400 that you just spent. And it's not your $2,400 you spent uh, using this woman's body. It's the taxpayer's money 
that you're spending. And how are you spending it? You're creating jobs. There's plenty enough jobs now, prosecutors, for judges, for guards, for police, and on and on and on. As Hillary Clinton once said, we will put 100,000 new police on the streets. Guess who pays for that? This, this is how they use incarceration and slavery as an economic development program. And then they, as Scotty pointed out, use things like gerrymandering to put you in jail cells or prisons in their area so they can count you as a citizen in their community right. when you may be the only mm-hmm. black people in the whole damn community, in right. the jails. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous and and I, I'm going to have to look into it in terms of my county, uh, but to hear Sister Layla say that that's how they paying for their emerg- EMTs, that's right. it, it's like that because, you know, I was reading another article today um, about this project to use Bitcoin to, or it, not really Bitcoin, but something new they're coming up with. It's posted in the move to abolish 21st century slavery groups. Someone posted it, as a matter of fact. Yeah, posted it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna speak on that and I have an update as well. Yeah, about yeah. That. and um, but the fact it points out the fact that most cases end in a plea bargain, so you're not even going to to trial. You would think that's what costs the most money is when people go to trial. But most of the cases are ending in plea deals. So how do you justify these exorbitant uh, uh, court costs, court fees, and I didn't even take it to trial? I I don't understand that. Other than, like she said, you know, you just sucking the blood out of us. That's 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 exactly what they're doing. Because you know on top of every sentence they come with all kinds of fees that go along with it that many people end up becoming you know when they get home they get arrested for not paying the fees later on yeah max son going through that right now yeah right now thousands yeah, of dollars i got to call him nice. too I, I i meant to call him today max i'm gonna call him tomorrow yeah, as a matter of fact, when my son got freed, Yusuf was met him before I did. Yusuf was the first one with his hand out, said, "Here I am, brother. What do you need? I'm here to help you." Uh, that is beautiful. Yeah, he, Yusuf knows about justice for sure. You know, there's one other story in this uh, trilogy that I wanted to put out there for everybody to see and hear, uh, and it mm-hmm. all fits together, of course. But I would like to read a couple of uh, parts of it to you, so you guys can add this to today's daily bread. This article uh, comes from it comes from the Daily Beast, and the title is "Debt Company Makes Sheriffs Rich by Jailing the Poor." Lawsuit claims. Now, remember, we're moving across the country with this. So, th- the last one we just mentioned was Colorado, and now we're talking about uh, out here in Oklahoma. So it says, "Ira Wilkins should be a free man." Wilkins has served his time in an Oklahoma prison and is clear for release, but a private court fee collection agency is keeping him behind bars. Wilkins is the lead plaintiff in a new racketeering lawsuit. He's fighting back. He's the new plaintiff in a new racketeering lawsuit against the Oklahoma Sheriff's Association, every sheriff's department in the state, and the court fee collections firm Aberdeen Enterprise 2. When Oklahomans owe court fees, their case now, hold on. Sorry about that. <clears throat> Apparently, these pop-ups start playing by themselves. When Oklahoma's owe court fees, their case is assigned to Aberdeen. 
which charges them an additional 30% on top of what the court wants. Like uh, Layla was just saying a little while ago, if they don't pay, Aberdeen requests a warrant for the debtor's arrest. It's big business for Aberdeen and the Oklahoma Sheriff's Association, which receives more than $800,000 from Aberdeen in 2015. Under Aberdeen's watch, debtors can also wind up in jail. When an Oklahoma woman owes court fees, fees, Aberdeen contacts the debtor by phone or mail, informing them of the arrest warrant. The message is clear. Pay or go to jail. In 2016, mm. failure to pay was the fourth most common cause of incarceration in the state, with 1,163 Oklahomans booked into jail, according to the lawsuit. That's almost as many as possession of controlled substance, the most common cause of incarceration, with 1,326 people uh, booked. Currently, Oklahoma has approximately 45,000 open failure-to-pay warrants. Daniel Smolin, one of the attorneys representing Wilkins, told the Daily Beast, Smolin said the system represents a private company's disturbing creep into law enforcement. Imagine if Visa could call you if you didn't make an arbitrary payment for the amount that they thought was fair and issue a warrant for your arrest. That's how it is, Smolin said. You can find that article on New Abolitionist Radio, but uh, I want to open up the floor for any comments, and then uh, we'll get the update from Yusuf after that. Yeah, I mean that's that's extremely illegal right there. I was I was going to mention that, but I'm glad they mentioned it in the article where you have a private company where their only remedy for someone not paying them would normally be through the civil route. So when they actually you know, can call up their buddy and say, drop a warrant on this dude and go pick him up for me. Mm-hmm. Forcing him to pay. Nobody else can do that. This is a private company that's operating outside of law enforcement, but they're using law enforcement as their bounty hunters. You know, so, um, I'm exposed to a lot of media and the thoughts of different people, and they all have good intentions. The people I'm about to speak about, they have good intentions. They're trying to solve a problem, okay? But sometimes the things that they're putting forth as solutions don't make any sense to me, and I can't find any real-world examples where it's actually bringing relief to people, all right? So we have what what is called theories, theories about these solutions, and theories are educated and sometimes not so educated guesses until they are proven they remain theories and they are not facts. And I mentioned this today. We once theorized on New Abolitionist Radio that federal law called RICO could be used to attack elements of the system of legal slavery. Then the SPLC and or the ACLU, I wasn't sure which one actually sued the bail bond companies using RICO and one which proved our theory on using RICO and transition it to the realm of facts. So I, I'm very, very uh, encouraged to hear that this individual is using RICO. Is using RICO. Again, a death by a thousand paper cuts. However, we can attack this system, weaken any part of it. 
you know, sometimes you just got to remove the foundation and the wall will collapse. It'll fall in on itself if you remove certain key bricks from the system. So I'm very, very happy to keep seeing this as a reoccurring theme of, of people using this as a tool to fight back. And I hope he wins. It's extortion, no doubt about that. And there's a last story that I'm not going to read, but just to let everybody know, it's about North Carolina, your home state, where they're fighting back in the same ways over there. Maybe I'd like to hear your opinion on any of this. If you're able. We're available at the moment. I'm here. I'm having huge problems. <laughs> Upsetting. We're I can still dealing you. with um, private prisons, and we're dealing with nepotism. And we're dealing with slavery, indentured servitude, and none of it has gone away. I don't understand why more of us are not involved. When these things, is it, are we not educating people enough? Where is the apathy from, why is there so much apathy from our people? Because we're the ones most affected by these, and they were created for us. And that's where I am now. Um... We have to start organizing, educating. Um, that's what you guys have been doing. That's why I'm so excited to be a part of this show, because we have to get this information to the people. It's very important. Indeed. Uh, you got to bring these connections together. And, and, you know, I think a big problem, and I've always been saying this, and I, I was talking to a young brother just yesterday explaining it to him, is... There's two groups that are supposed to know the rights of the U.S. citizen. That's the U.S. citizen themselves and then the people that swear an oath to defend those rights, whether it be your military veterans, politicians, cops, uh, whoever swears an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States of America to the point until they die. If they should get killed along the way, they're swearing that that is an acceptable risk in order to defend these rights for our citizens and our nation. Well, the citizen isn't necessarily required to know those rights. It's the people who swore it, an oath, and are getting paid to defend them that are supposed to know them verbatim and understand how they work, particularly the Bill of Rights. And if you can walk up to a policeman or a judge, or as we have done here many times on New Abolitionist Radio with a prosecutor or an attorney and they don't even know what the Sixth Amendment says. They don't know what the Thirteenth Amendment says. They might not even know what the Fourth Amendment said. For all I know, all I know. if they don't have that information in their head, then it's very likely that they are the very ones who are violating those rights. And that's happening every day all over the country. Fourth Amendment rights violated with stop and frisk. Sixth Amendment rights violated with these damn debtors' prisons. Thirteenth Amendment violated creating... Uh, modern day slavery and human trafficking and when you say hey what are you doing here what's this amendment that you're supposed to be defending our rights for they have no clue one correction Max if I may they're not yes. violating the 13th amendment they're enforcing it and yes you're right yeah so mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. I just want people who swore that oath <laughs> to know Understand That's part what of what doing. you are defending is slavery. Right. So, you know, you want to lay your li life down on the line for that. Right, exactly. You, 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 good catch on that, Scotty. I think I kind of felt it when I said it, but you're right. You are enforcing slavery under the color of law. And that's something you should understand. And if you haven't read those rights, you wouldn't know. 
And if you're swearing oaths and you're not reading the damn thing, then you're just a liar. That's all you are. And liars shouldn't be out here talking about justice. Any uh, other comments on that? If, <clears throat> if not, uh, we'll uh, go to Yousef and hear the update on the cryptocurrency, I believe it is. Yes. Uh, I just want to backtrack one one second, if you guys don't mind, going back to when you guys were talking about Philadelphia and the district attorney. Uh, Michael Cord, I don't know if you guys are familiar with him, but he's one of the yes, main I, attorneys I, I know him. You know, pushing this whole uh, abolitionist thing through uh, Krasner. And uh, they've actually formed a law firm called the Nat Turner Law Firm. You know, <laughs> Michael Cord, Berto Elmore, a couple of attorneys. So I'm going to work on getting him on the show because, you know, he's 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 a hellraiser there in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I know, so I know, Michael. I'm going to work uh, on getting I, I, him on first... the show sometime in the future, so we can, since he's in the in the uh, district attorney's ear. You know, we're going to send some messages to the district attorney. Yeah, I know um, Michael Cord. I first interviewed him back in 2007 when he was involved in exposing the graves that they had found of some of Washington's victims of slavery at that president's house mm -hmm. and, and getting those people uh, proper recognition and, and reburial. Um, so yeah, I known Michael Core for quite some time, man. Um, he just recently put out a good piece on on the Meek Mill situation and that judge involved in that, who is being investigated by the FBI. So I'm sure you just mentioned Scotty Reed. He'll he'll agree to come on. Great, great. <laughs> I definitely do that. Okay, so this uh, I ran across an article today. Cryptocurrency is the next frontier in the quest to abolish cash bail. Now, we've been talking about cash bails for a long time here and, you know, dealing with the Eighth Amendment and how the whole bail system has been exploiting, just like all the other issues we discussed earlier and all the other times. So a company has created uh, what's called bail block, and... For those that aren't familiar with cryptocurrency, I know you've probably been hearing a lot of it in the news about Bitcoin and Ethereum and Litecoin and um, a whole bunch of others. It's sort of like a currency other than mainstream currency. And what's, what generates uh, the value in it is it utilizes people's computers all over the world to create certain tasks. Like, there's no physical currency, although they talk about a coin and currency and everything. There's no physical coin at all. It's all done digitally. And I've actually been in, in it, involved in it for a couple of weeks now and actually I'm starting to see some returns, you know, because when it started out a few years ago, it was Bitcoin was going at about $7. It started at about seven cents a share and it's over seven thousand dollars now you know per bitcoin so this company you know i've reached out to them and they seem to be going along the lines of coinciding with some of the things that we do and they want to come up with they've come up with a system where 
they're going to use cryptocurrency, the same procedure of, you know, the, the data mining and all of this stuff to generate funds, and 100% of those funds are going to go towards bailing people out. They want to target people that are sitting in jail $1,000 and under, which we know that that's the vast majority of people that are sitting in jail. You know, so that's what they want to use it for. Uh, the update is I just I just heard from uh, Maya Benham. She's one of the she's one of the executives at the company. So she said that you know she'll she'll be available to come on next week if uh, if we'll have her. You know, and she can explain you know how everything is going to work, how they how the whole process is going to work. So you you said that's what I'm throwing out to the community. Yourself, I shared that story today on Tando Radio Show. Um, Dave, uh-huh. Dave is very involved in the cryptocurrencies, and I just asked him his opinion on it, and he he thinks that it's great, and he doesn't see why it would not work. And but I think right. the important thing to point out here is that it requires participation. You have to download Absolutely. the program to your computer and then the computer will be data mining and I think it, if I remember correctly it said it may come up with $3 a month or $5 a month so that's not a lot yeah, of money it's not a lot. Right. for an individual but I think their right. target was something like maybe 5000 but let's say you got 100,000 people using that and generating right. those funds. And they have a couple of cities that I think St. Louis, Missouri was one. Um, mm-hmm. I, there was a couple of other ones. and But, you know, this is, again, it's, it's a new initiative, a new project. And I do plan on downloading that program. I mean, because, I, I mean, what excuse do I have? I, I, I know a lot of us, especially in the black community, we don't have a whole lot of funds or, or, or whatnot. We try to do the best right. that we can to support things, but this doesn't require you to to donate any funds. You just have to it download the, the program. Right, none of neither. Right, right. So I, I'll be very excited to learn more about it. Yeah, it's it's the Bronx, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and St. Louis, Missouri, and plans to move onto dozens of other locations over time. But that's where they want to start for now. So, you know, God willing, she'll be on the show next week, and she can, uh, you know, maybe if people have questions, you know, she can she can answer questions for everyone. And, I, you know, that's why I shared it, because I'm like, well, wait a minute. I've been doing it because, you know, my computer's on all the time, so I'm like, okay, why don't I just, you know, make some money off of it? And, you know, it's not a lot of money, but it's it's money nonetheless, you know, that, that my computer is making for me. I'm not even doing anything. So why not have it go towards something that I firmly believe in? Well, I can't say that I, I, I can't pretend to understand everything that's going on here completely, but it sounds good to me, and I'm going to keep my eye on it, and hopefully we get to speak with her next week. Uh, and any other comments on this uh, particular issue? I just want to make sure I have the right name. Crystal currency or crystal money? Well, it's, cryptocurrency. it's, called, it's called crypto. C-R-Y-P-T-E. I wonder if I can find it. Right, cryptocurrency. Uh, and the project is called Bail Block. 
there uh wait I had the website up earlier thank you I wanted to just do some research Crypt- um, cryptocurrency the name of the article the website is injusticetoday.com injusticetoday.com the name of the article is cryptocurrency is the next frontier in the quest to abolish cash bail and I'll go ahead and post that to New Abolitionist Radio's Facebook page but I did post it earlier today in btrcommunity.com okay and I'll, I'll put it in the uh, I'll put it in the uh Millions for prisoners and inside the uh, move to abolish 21st century slavery. We need these kind of radical ideas to make a difference in what's going on, to create the type of resources that are necessary to get people free. Uh, This is why I'm out here in Ohio right now, you know what I mean? Uh, I want to squeeze in just one quick story, too, before we get on to our, our regular segments tonight. If it's at all possible. Max, it would be a good time to take our last station identification break. Okay, what we'll do is we'll take that. When we come back, I want to uh, squeeze in real quick. The story about a judge who resigned after a youth court was shut down uh, when the baby was taken from the mother over unpaid court fees. We'll be right back. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. Radio since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. All right, welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, real quick, as I said, I wanted to get try to get this through. It's one more story, and I don't want to be the bearer of bad news all the time. What my intention here tonight. Uh, producing this and putting it together in this way was to try to show you how all of this is connected. It's all modern-day slavery and human trafficking, and it's compartmentalized, where these people are doing this thing and these people are doing that thing, and it shows you how it's exploiting uh, the American citizen and particularly people of color in this country. And this final one will kind of drive the nail to the coffin. The Youth Court of Peel, Mississippi, has been shut down, and its judge, John Shirley, a Republican Party activist, has been forced to resign after widespread disapproval of his decision to bar a mother from seeing her four-month-old baby for 14 months over her unpaid court fees. The story began when the mother, who is African-American, was passing through Pearl on a job hunt. She was pulled over by local police who found that she and the car's driver had outstanding warrants for misdemeanor offenses. See how we've been talking about this all night, and this is the results of it. She and the driver were arrested, and the baby was declared abandoned by the arresting officer, despite the baby's grandmother arriving within minutes of the arrest. Judge Shirley's court awarded custody to the grandmother and issued an order prohibiting the mother from having any contact with her baby until the court fees were paid. An act that Roderick and Solange MacArthur Justice Center Directive Cliff Johnson called judicial kidnapping. When the Senate took on the mother's case and publicized it, 
Pearl Mayor Jake Windham shut down the youth court, and another judge vacated the no-contact order. Judge Shirley resigned before he could be fired and insists that he resigned over differences with the mayor and not because he knew he was about to be fired for gross misconduct. The entire story is available on our page on New Abolitionist Radio, but that was literally kidnapping right there. You kidnapped this child and like you ain't going to see your baby until you pay us this money. This is how modern slavery and human trafficking works where they entrap you and then they finally incarcerate you and then they exploit you and then they spit you right back out into society expecting you to come back as a reusable resource with 80% recidivism rates in states and 50% in federal. There's someone who did not get fired, who should have been fired, and that was that slave catcher. The the grandmother's there within minutes, but you're going to declare this baby abandoned? That's, man, that, man, I tell you, man, this is the type of stuff that drives people over the edge. It is, exactly. In San Diego, they had to settle, um, one woman while going through something similar they illegally placed her baby up for adoption and mm. even though they settled with her and gave her money the laws are still preventing her from ever having her child again so and they're buying and selling a lot of these women's children and while they're doing this the foster care system is right there in line with the prison industrial slave complex where they're actually selling our babies after incarceration. Yes. So we're losing yeah. our children and they're selling our children. So somebody tell me again, cause I have these occasional debates with people about pre-1865 slavery and the slavery that we're experiencing right now. Every time I do this program, well not just this program, cause you know, this information is being shared through the various social media groups and what have you. We talk about these issues week in and week out. And every element that I have read about that we associate with quote-unquote chattel slavery, I'm still seeing it in a present form today. And what did slavery do back pre-1865 but destroy families and and commodify babies? I can't see the difference. Yes. Well, I'm glad that we have an opportunity here at this moment in time to be able to open people's eyes to what's happening, to show them the bigger picture, to provide some clarity and simplicity, because the argument ain't that difficult. It's slavery. It's been legalized. They're using it on you. Where? How? The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Oftentimes, your state constitution has a reflecting uh, exception for prisoners duly convicted or people who commit, uh, what is that in Georgia you can go to prison for uh, contempt of court or in Vermont for debts and the like and then we're showing you here in each week how exactly that is happening to millions of people um, we're going to wrap this up with our last segments coming up our uh, regular segments in the future we might have to figure out a way to kind of change things up and shorten them because these these are uh, these are so important, I don't want to lose them. But the first one would be our riders of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. We'll be following that with our abolitionists in profile and finishing it up with our, for freedom's sake, a history of rebellion. Uh, 
all of those are available right now on New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, if you want, I will pull up the first one, which will be our riders of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, and you guys can pick one of the other two that you'd like to read. Our riders this week of the 21st Century Underground Railroad are two people, Eric Kelly and Ralph Lee, who walked out of prison uh, just November 8th after a 24-year fight for freedom. Today, innocent project client Eric Kelly and centurion client Ralph Lee walked out of a New Jersey, New Jersey prison experiencing freedom for the first time in more than 20 years. Back in September, a New Jersey court vacated their convictions for a 1993 felony murder and robbery based on DNA evidence identifying another suspect. After the court set a bail that the two men could make, the prosecution appealed their release. Today, the New Jersey Supreme Court rejected the prosecution's arguments, paving the way for the men to post the bail. The prosecution also appealed the court's order vacating their convictions, but now they will be free while the appeals proceeds through the courts. You can read more about their case on New Abolitionist Radio right there, but we here at New Abolitionist Radio would like to say welcome to Freedom, Eric Kelly and Ralph Lee. Welcome to freedom. Right, welcome to freedom. We're, welcome we'll to freedom. You are out after twenty something years. You are out. Awesome. I will go ahead and take for stay free- out of Patterson. <laughs> I know, right? It's just, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, Max. You gotta see it, man. <laughs> I will. No, I was born there. I will take the uh, For Freedom's Sake segment, and Layla, if you want to prepare, you can take our abolitionists in profile, if you're able. So let me... Okay, and that's... Okay, go ahead. Yeah, they're, Max posted both of them. They're at the top of the page on New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, the first one is For Freedom's Sake, and I'll go ahead and take that one. All right, so... Hey, just, right. A, just a heads up, the abolitionist in profile is very long, just feel free to just read as much of it as you feel comfortable with uh, considering the time and then people can read the rest on New Abolition. Yeah, we still got about 15 minutes um, um, okay. and just for the regular listeners who also stay tuned for Mind, Body and Spirit the ladies are on hiatus right now as they are moving from Houston to Galveston so they are going to be off air for a couple of hours I mean excuse me a couple of weeks as they get uh, moved all right, so our um, segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, we remember the Amistad Rebellion of 1839. In 1839, a group of Africans were kidnapped near Sierra Leone and sold to Spanish slavers, despite the fact that importing of uh, human beings from Africa was illegal in 1839. 39. The victims of slavery were taken to Cuba and loaded aboard the Amistad, Spanish for friendship, because what's friendlier than a slave ship? <laughs> However, the Africans had no intention of going anywhere, especially after the Amistad's cook told them the Spanish planned to eat them. As the ship sailed away from Cuba, 25-year-old uh, Singbe, I can't pronounce this name, a.k.a. Sinku. Sinku. 
Sin-Q yeah, Sin-Q. used a long nail to open the lock on his collar and free his comrades. While the sailors battled a storm, the Africans found a supply of sugarcane knives and rushed the deck. The overwhelmed crew never had a chance. The rebels killed the captain and the cook and ordered two Spanish captains to sail towards Africa. The Spanish complied during the day. At night, they turned the boat around picked up the pace and headed towards America. Two months later, the Amistad arrived in New York where the victims of slavery were seized upon by American troops. Then they fought a much bigger foe than the Spanish slavers, the American government. Sincu and his friends were tried for murder and the case divided the nation. Abolitionists ran to the prisoners' defense while President Martin Van Buren took a pro-slavery stance in the hope of appeasing the Spanish government and Southern voters. Secretary of State John Forsyth even ordered a ship to be ready the minute a guilty verdict was handed down. That way, the victims of slavery could be whisked away to Cuba before having a chance to appeal. However, things didn't go as Van Buren had hoped. The judge ruled since it was illegal to kidnap people from Africa, the Africans had been acting in self-defense and found them innocent. But Van Buren, a sore loser, ordered an appeal in the case went to the Supreme Court. Q and his friends were defended by the staunch abolitionist and former American president John Quincy Adams, who argued the Africans had a right to freedom. And in March 1841, the court ruled that the Africans could go home. After three long years, 35 other survivors finally returned to Sierra Leone, where they established a settlement and sparked reforms which led to the country's independence from Britain. And New Abolitionist Radio salutes the participants in the Amistad Rebellion of 1839. Salute. 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 Mm-hmm. Got to remember all of these stories, man, because it's all important. Well, uh, our next one will be our abolitionist in profile, and he, I picked that one particularly. You'll see there's a picture of me at the grave of A.A. A. Guthrie. Uh, he's one of the most prominent abolitionists here in the Ohio territories, and I don't think we have ever done his uh, profile on new abolitionists. I can't remember him. I, I certainly don't remember, so I think this is the first time we will have done his profile. And this is new for me. So you guys want me to read about Mr. Guthrie? Yes, please. Albert Austin Guthrie was born on July 9, 1803 in Washington County, Ohio. He received little schooling as he was obliged to work on the farm for eight months of the year. However, he educated himself by general reading and observation of the world. At the age of 13, he moved to Putnam to work with his brother, Julius Astor, in which he later became a partner. As a merchant, he would rise to become one of Putnam's leading citizens, playing a critical role in the development of many of the town's institutions, including the Underground Railroad. Albert's brother Stephen was also involved. He also wrote the following concerning the brothers' involvement in the Underground Railroad. We repudiated the infamous law in every way. If a poor bondsman came to us fleeing by the twinkling light of the North Star to the realms of liberty where no slave could breathe air, we can say and thank God for it. He never asked in vain. We have helped many on their way to Canada, and as far as we know, as far as we know it, no slave was ever taken and returned to bondage from there. Our Underground Railroad was safe and sure, and no train was ever ditched or run off the track. 
and the blessing of freedmen in Canada has been wafted to us from that land of liberty many times to our cheers to cheer our hearts. Guthrie was named in several of the correspondence that Siebert received inquiring into Underground Railroad activity. Reverend T.M. Stevenson from Marietta, Ohio wrote that A.T. Putnam, the Buckinghams, and the Guthries were principal. U.G.R.R. rich folks they were. They were new school Presbyterians. Thomas Williams of Pennsylvania, located in Morgan County, Ohio, along with his brother Enoch, had inherited working on the Underground Railroad from their Quaker from their father, Quaker Isaac Williams, named Guthrie as a participant. In an interview, Williams discussed that Guthrie had been an accomplice in escape of sixteen freedom seekers in June nineteen excuse me, eighteen forty eight. It does seem like these things are still happening. Hudson Chaplin Ward, writing from Columbus, Ohio on September tenth, eighteen ninety five recounted that while he was working as a clerk in the general store, Guthrie Bunkingham and Company, of which Austin Albert Guthrie was a senior man, fugitive slaves would come to the back door of the store, where Ward was sleeping at the time. According to Ward, Mr. Guthrie would supply them with shoes or clothing there, whatever they needed, and then the fugitives were taken right on. It was not unusual for Guthrie to work in concert with African Americans. According to his brother Stephen, Albert and his brothers often worked with the, count, with the county's African-American residents, including William Harris, who also resided in Putnam. In another recorded incident, Guthrie and his wife helped hide a, freedom, a female freedom seeker and her four children in the attic of a colored townsman in 1852. According to the rest of the story, the woman and children were sent along in large store boxes, which Guthrie would have had access to as operators of a general store, and made their way to, ca to Canada. Guthrie's home, which was referred to as a center of hospitality and of an intellectual life, was also believed to have played a role in the Underground Railroad activity, having been used as a place to hide freedom seekers. A.A. Guthrie's involvement in the Underground Railroad was an outgrowth of his participation in the abolitionist movement. According to his brother Stephen, in the year 1834, the agitation of the anti-slavery question spread abroad through the land. Brother Austin became interested, took decided ground against the encroachments of the slave power, and advocated the cause of the slave and his right to emancipation. So today, our profile, abolitionist profile, is Albert Austin Guthrie on the new abolitionist radio. Thank you, you guys. That was great. Salute. Salute. <laughs> no doubt. Uh I'm out here right now with the descendants of these people who still consider themselves abolitionists and are proud of what their families did, black and white working together. It's a very much uh, mixed community here. So it's amazing to have been there at his gravesite, to hear his story, to visit his home just recently. And uh, our historian here told me that when I visited the gravesite there for him, that was a profound moment to see uh, the abolitionist movement alive again in that way. Most certainly, Salute. man. Most certainly. Yeah, these stories are often a source of inspiration for me as many of them put themselves at great risk. Why? Not because of they were trying to do something for themselves, but they were trying to do something for someone else, for victims of slavery. That's why it's hard for me whenever people ask me, 
how I'm doing or how I'm feeling, no matter how bad I'm feeling that day, I know that I'm in heaven compared to the victims of modern day slavery today. So it's nothing I have to complain about compared to what other people go through. And these abolitionists um, in profile, they are often a source of inspiration in selflessness. Absolutely. And, and you know, many of these acts that they did in the past, I mean, getting caught was almost absolute death. It was an absolute death sentence. And here, you know, in our time, you know, it's hard for people to call in when we want to do call-ins or show up to rallies or any type of support, you know. So we're definitely falling, as a, as a group, you know, we're falling way short of it, but you know, it's it's going to eventually change. You know, we're making a lot of changes all across the country. But, yeah, you know, every time I yeah. hear these stories, you know, I, I tear up and everything, man, because I'm like, they put it all on the line every single oh. day. Like, any any single day could have been, I mean, it's death for any of us any single day. But they were putting themselves in front of firing squads every single day. You know what they were get doing it for? Uh, one line in that uh, biography stood out for me. It says, in an unpublished autobiography, George Guthrie's wife wrote, I well remember hiding three children in our attic over one Sabbath while their owners were riding through the street in pursuit. Your whole life could be built around that moment. It's that important. I mean, you're saving three right. lives <laughs> right there. That's right. going to be your whole purpose in life, to do that one thing. And it's worth it. It's certainly worth it. And today we have millions, millions behind bars unjustly who deserve this type of freedom. Uh, okay, well, we're coming up on the conclusion of our program. That is our final segment. The last thing that we usually do every week is we leave a few comments for uh, listeners and, and followers here to remember until the next week. So who would like to start out with our final comments for the evening? Ladies first. First. <laughs> you know, Layla, I would like to say one more time, welcome home. Thank you. That's really um, all I have to say is that I feel home, and um, this was a great show. I've learned, and anywhere I can go and I can learn is always a phenomenal place. And I just want to thank you guys. I look forward um, to abolishing slavery with you, Max, and you, Scotty. And once again, thank you for inviting me, and I feel home. Word. Uh, Yusuf, anything? You know, as I always say, I'm, I'm glad to be along for the ride. You know, it's, you know, I always reflect back to, you know, when you came to our spoken word event and you just, ha just happened to mention me, what do you think about the 13th Amendment during the time when I was still doing law? You know, and it was like the craziest thing I ever heard. Because I'm like, wait a minute, we never learned this anywhere. And I've just been along for the ride ever since, and it's just been a great experience. So I, I thank you all, because you all motivate me with all of your posts, all of your positive words, everything, man. So I'm glad to be along for the ride. Word. Scotty Reed? Yes, sir. Um, I want to thank you, Max, for choosing the stories that you chose tonight 
um, as we read the different stories and the different efforts by people in different spaces all focused on the same issue and that's ending slavery from the revolutionary anarchists to the technologists who are putting together this cryptocurrency to bail people out of jail to the story about the young man who's going to use RICO charges to go after uh, some of these private slavers. It's just very inspirational. And, and then the story that about the prisoners in Brazil. This is indeed a global movement, and I feel very privileged to be a part of it and to play my small role. And thank you again to Sister Leila Aziz for accepting this invitation to help us co-host this program. Amen, man. Uh, and I'm just as appreciative of you and all those around us who would make this possible. And speaking of making it possible, uh, once more, I do want to say that we could use some help with this effort here in uh, Ohio in building this abolitionist community and compound with all the things that we need to educate this nation and to inspire them and to agitate and if you're interested, you could send uh, donations to prismaticdreams at gmail.com. That's P-R-Y-S-M-A-T-I-C, dreams at gmail.com. Uh, I'm going to close with this since I've got just enough time to say it. This nation was created on slavery. Its wealth and resources came from slavery. It still openly practices slavery under the legal guise of the 13th Amendment and a fake-ass criminal justice system. Tens of millions have lost their lives and freedoms after the emancipation. In 1928, 80% of Alabama state revenue came from convict leasing. In 2017, we have the largest prison population ever recorded on planet Earth, with 40% of the prison population represented by 13% of the population. In no state, despite racial dem demographics, are whites incarcerated more than minorities per capita. States like Vermont, New Jersey, Ohio, and Wisconsin are incarcerating blacks at as much as 14 to 1 per 100,000. 95% of these, those in jail, are there only because they can't afford the bail. 95% of cases never even get a trial. Over 1 million men and women are working for pennies and nothing inside prisons, providing commercial goods and services exploited by international corporations getting rich off slave labor. You would be performing a miracle if you went shopping today and didn't purchase something made in part or whole by prison labor. There is nothing in this nation, no issue, no problem, no bad situation that is not somehow directly linked to slavery. Not just slavery of the past, slavery right now. And we want you to remember that abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. 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 Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time, rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing rise up when famine claims millions when